everyone, and welcome to season two of the award-winning podcast, The Politics of Disability. My name is Mary Fasick. I am your host and founder of the Disability Justice Movement, Upgrade Accessibility. We're still navigating a bumpy road, but there are lots of problems along the way. You want to make sure you buckle up really tight. All set, here we go. Welcome back. Let's see where we left off. Oh, it was getting good. Are we all buckle in? Great. Let's not waste any more time and get right to it. I want to talk about how you feel, in your opinion, disability is viewed within the Black community. My friend and amazing disability advocate, Sean Gold, said to me in his interview, you cannot be Black and... You cannot be black and disabled. Mm. You cannot be black and gay. Mm. That there is this thing because he is both, he is black, disabled, and gay. Mm. And he said, you cannot be black and anything in the black community. Mm. Tell me your thoughts on how disability is viewed in the black community and why do you think that, you know, that's a powerful statement, right? You cannot mm-hmm. be black and. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, super powerful. And I would agree with that, right? And I want to come at it in two ways. So I'm first generation American. My father was from Haiti, my mother from Colombia. And I have the experience of being in both of those countries and seeing the ways that disabled people are treated and are completely made invisible, right? And that are regarded in a sense of like, oh, these poor, poor thing, right? As if they're useless and to be pitied, right? So that's one thing that I've experienced in those countries. And then in the United States, it's similar, (laughs) right? It's also this experience of, despite our own struggles with discrimination, and when I'm saying our, I'm saying Black people, we still see differences as being bad, Right. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations with black folks around trans rights and the same language that was used against black people in this country. They use that same language against trans folks. Right. The same language that was used against black people, they use against disabled black people. And it is pernicious. And it goes back to this notion that white supremacy, racism, ableism is not the shark, it's the water. We consume all of this information. We internalize all of that information. And then we use it against our own people. And when I had my son, that's when I started to think even more deeply about this, that you don't know who your kids are going to be. I mean, at any moment, you don't know what could happen to you that could change your life, but you don't know who your children are going to be. And that has allowed me to access even more empathy and fight because we pretend as if these are issues that affect other people over there. Like, no, we have to care because you just don't know in life, right? If you come from a place of care and love, again, I've said this several times, but it's just, just everybody benefits and you allow people to live a fuller experience. But yeah, I would definitely agree that no 
race has extended the rights or empathy to disabled people that they deserve. I want to ask you a question. Do you speak Spanish? Poorly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you know a Spanish disability is discapacidad, yep. which is a really good to discapacitate. Yep. And that speaks volumes of how disability is mute, right? So we're mm-hmm. mute as discapacitated. Like, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's something that I would love to venture in and talk about how disability is viewed in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Because that yeah, has carried over into our culture as well. There's often seen as a connection between disability and some kind of evil spirit even, or notion that your parent did something wrong, therefore your child ended up like this, right? It's this idea as if this is a problem. And again, that's because what we see as the norm is an able-bodied person. Therefore, anything that deviates from that is problematic. Several people have said this, but one person in particular said it to me around gender. Like with all these billions of people in this world, do we really think there's only room for two genders? (laughs) Like how ridiculous. With all the billions of people, do we really think that there's only one standard of how your body moves or how your body works, right? It's it's actually really foolish when you start to think about it. It truly is. And I want to go back to something you were talking about. And I want to tie it back to white supremacy and mm-hmm. how ableism is a tool of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And often I get pushed back for saying that. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to people who were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And if Uh the masters saw that there was something quote-unquote wrong with you or your child, they would kill you. So we go back to ableism, capitalism, racism, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't sell you Mm -hmm. because you weren't good enough to be sold. You Mm -hmm. would not make them money. Mm -hmm. So all of this goes back to enslave men. Absolutely. And I think about eugenics. I think about Darwin. All of these ideas that were used to perpetuate racism, ableism, but these ideas that the strongest will survive or that we can rank people, we can rank human beings in terms of the most infirm to the, to the most valuable, right? Like all of those things were seen as science. And while in theory, we may no longer uphold those beliefs, like they absolutely underlie everything. Now that we are still in a pandemic, even Mm. though people want to ignore that fact, but we are still very much in a pandemic. And that long COVID is a mass disabling event. And we know that Black and brown communities are the ones who are least likely to be vaccinated. And for good reason, especially the black community, they have good reason not to trust vaccines. Think about the Tuskegee Airmen when these men were really given illnesses on purpose. This happened in an institution for disabled children as well. Mm. They were 
professionally impacted just to see how their bodies will react to a disease. So when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, there's a reason for that. Yeah. But then I think about, again, how the most marginalized communities are the ones who are going to get COVID and end up with long COVID and end up with more disabled members of mm-hmm. their community. Talk to me about that landscape. What do you think that's going to look like in three or five years where we have the most marginalized communities, black and brown communities, becoming disabled because of COVID? Yeah, you know, I think about this a lot because, you know, whenever I'm on a plane or any kind of public transportation, I wear a mask. But there are many spaces now when I go to the grocery store where I'm not wearing a mask and where nobody's wearing a mask. Right. And I think about something that you said before, which is not an excuse for myself, but I think about the hypervisibility of being somebody in a mask right now. Right. And the hypervisibility for me of being a black woman in a town that's 2% black in a mask. Right. And so it's sort of this push pull around. And again, I'm not immunocompromised, but there's a safety for my health. Like I don't want to have COVID. I also don't want to have RSV, which I did have because my son is in school. I don't want to have the flu, which I did have because my son is in school. So there's the health risk there, but then there's also this additional burden of, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to call attention to myself. And you spoke about the experience of being in an elevator and a white person saying to you, oh, are masks mandated again? Right. This idea that then white people or people with privilege feel like they want to assert themselves and question you for why you're doing what you're doing. So again, that doesn't excuse me from not wearing a mask, but I think we are facing a real failure of leadership and shifting the culture. Like there was an opportunity for empathy, for science, for disabled people, for just recognizing that we're all connected and that you're wearing a mask because you love yourself and you love other people. We miss that boat. I have a friend who's suffering from long COVID and my friend is 37 years old, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, who knows how that's gonna manifest, right? Who knows the disaster that we've created? And guess what? There's gonna be another COVID-like event, (laughs) right? We're not beyond it. So I don't know, I just, I get so upset thinking about like, what is our leadership actually doing? You know, they're, they're fighting on Twitter with each other or they're creating obstacles just to get points from voters rather than really dealing with these massive issues that are interconnected. Disability justice, environmental justice, racial justice. We're headed towards so many calamities and there's no leadership. You're right. right. We have this opportunity, you know, but again, like, Profit over people. Everyone was rushed back to work. And now it doesn't matter if you have a problem with COVID test, like go to work anyway. Right. It's like, I don't know who has COVID. There are maintenance men that come into my apartment to mm. treat something. They don't wear a mask. Mm. I'm at risk every time they enter my apartment. Yes, I'm wearing a mask. Yes, I keep my distance. But there is still someone in my apartment who may or may not be vaccinated and is not wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. 
So even though I've been home for almost three years now, every time I come in to pick something, I'm put rest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had an inspection this week of our apartment. And when I came in to do the inspection, I said, I'm stepping outside. So I have a mask on and I'm outside while they're inspecting my apartment because I don't want to be in a close space with people who are unmasked. And right. the fact that masks are like such a political statement now right. is right. so ridiculous to me. But yeah. somebody I always hear is disability political, right? So there you go. Right. There's, right. there's me being political. <laughs> and, but, and I understand that my existence and the existence of my entire community, my mere existence is a political statement. Yep. And it should not be, but yet it is. And to your point, like, I also agree that everything is political, but masks became politicized in a way that was polarizing. Right. And it's because, you know, the right was looking for any way to conflate this idea of wearing a mask with the abortion rights movement. Right. Like this idea that my body, my choice. And this is where so many of these conversations lack nuance. Right. It's apples and oranges. But politicians the language and the rhetoric has become so simplistic and polarized that, yeah, to wear a mask somehow signifies all of these other things when truly it's about like your health and caring for people. It's about me not dying, which is yes. what they want, right? Because right, right, you care. right. Something I have said since March of 2020 is I have always known that society wanted me dead. But mm-hmm. knowing that society wants me dead and then seeing it in my face are two completely different things. I've always known this. I've always known that my existence is seen as a burden. Mm-hmm. And they would rather I don't exist. But mm-hmm. when I'm watching people at the beginning of 2020, holding up signs that say sacrifice the week. That was like Mm. eye-opening to me. And that is when my work came from disability rights to disability justice. Because Mm. I knew that without disability justice, it wouldn't matter what disability rights I fought Mm. for. Mm. That's so disgusting and, and heartbreaking. Yeah, it amazes me. And now, something I've said is if we're going to work toward collective liberation, that has to include COVID precautions. Mm-hmm. COVID precautions is part of collective liberation. Mm-hmm. Because collective liberation includes the disabled and chronically ill community, particularly the most marginalized. It has to also include COVID mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I want to talk about what drives your passion and your advocacy. What, what is that? And I think I know part of the answer, but what keeps you going? Because this work is hard, right? Yeah. So hard. 
And I know that there are days when I just don't want to anymore. So on the days when you just don't want to anymore, what keeps you going? So it's a, it's a mix of things. Now that I have my son, absolutely my son drives so much of it because as a parent, it's your, I feel it's my role to do as much as I can for him in my house to make him feel like he can be his authentic self. And then in the world to do as much as I can to make sure that the world allows him to be his authentic self. But even before my son, it's funny, I was going to say, I love people, but sometimes I hate people, (laughs) but I do. I love building community. I love being in spaces where people can thrive and I love creating really good energy. And so I recognize that the obstacles to that are all these structural, historical, institutional issues, right? Racism, ableism, sexism, all of those things prevent us from being our best selves. And so ultimately, that really is it, right? I want to create spaces where we can all be our full authentic selves. And as somebody who has access to certain privileges, I know I know what that could look like, right? And so I want to ensure that everyone has that. But truly, it's my son, you know, and I just, it's terrifying to think of what could happen to him, whether it's a school shooting, whether it's a shooting anywhere at this point. I have this urge to want to just keep him in my house forever. But knowing that I can't do that, I have to do what I can in the world as much as I can. You know, I'm but one person, but as much as I can to try to create a safer space for him. And I think, you know, you share a lot of important things that especially, you know, like we've seen so much violence recently and it's hard to reconcile and, and, and process everything we're seeing on a daily basis. And again, we're trying to work towards this collective liberation, but if we don't include everyone we will never get there. Yep. And I want nothing more than for your son to grow up and be a grandpa. You know, exactly. like I want him to grow old and live a full life, whatever that means to mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. I want nothing more than that for him. I think that's also what keeps me going mm-hmm. is to make sure that I use the privilege that I do have mm-hmm. to amplify voices like yours mm-hmm. and at some point your sons, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's important. Do you have any final thoughts or message to the audience like to those doing social justice work or mm-hmm. authors or in the black community, outside of the black community, what mm-hmm. are your Final talk and a message for the audience. You know, there's so many things that I could say, but I'm going to say this, that anybody who's listening, I want you to understand how important it is to support folks like Mary, support folks like myself, support folks who are putting themselves at the forefront of this, right? And support can be many things. Support can be asking Mary how she's feeling. (laughs) Support can be financial because you love this podcast and you appreciate the work that she's doing. Support can be 
resharing this conversation so that more people hear it and more people start to question what they believe and maybe more people get encouraged to take chances, right? Oftentimes as helpers, we don't ask for help ourselves, but each of us has a role to play. It's not just the ones who are putting themselves the most out there who have a role in social justice work. Every single person has a role in social justice work. So think about what that is for you. And if that is helping the helpers, then please, we need all the help we could get. We give a help with also buying Allison's book, William yes. Moore Black. Thank you. Um, which is available everywhere, correct? Everywhere you can everywhere. buy a book. Absolutely. Buy a book, read a book. It's amazing. And, you know, start on that anti-racist journey. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with a book? Read the book and then you'll find out what that has to do. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Taking the time to have such an important conversation with me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. Anytime. And actually, I am coming to... Atlanta at the end of February. If I can find a car and find you, I will do that. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Politics of Disability podcast. I can never get your journey. Remember, disability is political. Disability is messy. Disability is not powerful, nor does it have to be.